Open your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5 will read the first six verses as we transition from Paul's line of thought, dealing more as the word is polemically, which means to tear down. He's tearing down some false doctrines and he's about to move into some more practical implications. If I could title the section of Scripture from chapter 5 through verse 6, it would be living in liberty. He's going to move past the focus that he gives in the first four chapters dealing primarily with the fact that salvation is by the work of Christ and that we are justified solely by the blood of Christ, understanding that justification through faith, not by works of the law, but only through Jesus Christ, exclusively through Jesus Christ. And in this chapter, he begins in verse 1 as we read, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you, that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to, the whole, to do the whole law. Christ is become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. The Apostle Paul has began his typical transition, and you will notice this as you study the Pauline epistles. He primarily has a foundational base that he lays at the beginning of all of his epistles. Now, you can look through the book of Romans and see through the first 11 chapters, Paul will build some fundamentals of the faith. And I would consider Romans to be Paul's systematic theology, as it were. He starts with man before God. All men are sinners, both Jew and Gentile, going into substitutionary atonement, justification by faith, running through election and predestination in chapters 9 and 10 and 11, even dealing with the Jews, and then in chapter 11, breaking into the fact that we should present our bodies as living sacrifices. Likewise in Ephesians. The first three chapters deal primarily with the very fact that we are first redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. Then in chapter 4, we begin to learn about we, about we ourselves need to put off the old man and put on the new. And here in Galatians, he moves from his very firm tone against the detractors. And these first 12 verses, as it were, is a transitionary period where he's going to move from this principle of kind of almost an argument, as it were, arguing against those Judaizers to then moving in what does it mean for the person in the pew. One thing I love about the writings of 
Paul is that it's, they are always pastoral in nature. Paul never leaves the sheep behind. Paul never leaves, as it were, the person in the pew without understanding the ethical implications of Christian doctrine. You see, the truth of Jesus Christ is more than just education for the head. It's equally food for the heart, and it is exhortation for the feet. We move from just thinking to feeling to doing. Think, feel, do is the Christian motto in a sense. We understand what God has done for us. We feel this feeling in our heart, and then we move into an active service to God, understanding what Christ has done for His people. Here in verse 1, he tells us, stand fast, therefore. And this word, therefore, is a transition word. It builds on what has went prior. Anytime that you read the word, therefore, you know, we have that cliche line, you must understand what it is there for. You have to understand what's went before. Well, Paul has went four chapters with dealing with the Judaizers, dealing with the thought of falling back under the Mosaic Law, dealing with final, that culmination of the allegory he uses in the end of chapter 4 by saying we are either of Sarah or Agar, we're either of the free woman looking to Christ by faith, or we are believing our works get us there, and either we're in freedom or mentally we're in bondage. And that's why he says we, being believers in Jesus Christ, should do what? Stand fast. And this phrase, stand fast, me means to very quickly be immovable, right? Fast doesn't mean they're moving fast, but what he's saying is what they should do is quit ye like men in a sense. Stand up and be immovable in the grace of God. Be unwavering in the grace of God. Therefore, because of what Christ has done for us, be immovable in the doctrines of Jesus Christ. Now, if I told some folks in today's times to be immovable in the doctrines of Jesus Christ or standing fast in Christ or standing fast in that liberty, I doubt they would actually know what they were to be standing fast in. This has an underlining exhortation to stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free. We must understand first what we are free in and what that freedom entails, right? <laughs> you can't stand fast in doctrine if you don't know what doctrine is. You can't stand fast in Christ. You know, people say, you know, I, I, I just, you know, I don't need any of that doctrine stuff. I just I love Jesus Christ. Well, who is Jesus Christ? Well, He's the Son of God and Savior of my soul. Well, guess what? That's doctrine. <laughs> the very second you state what you believe about Jesus, you're stating doctrine. And if we ever stand back and say, you know, I don't need any of that doctrine stuff. I don't need any of that uh, thick meat of the Word. I don't really need to understand any of the details. I just love Jesus. Well, if you don't understand what you love Him for then you don't love Jesus. It's just a fad. To love Jesus means to love the biblical Jesus. Amen? To love Jesus means to understand who you're loving. Now, it's true that every child of grace has an innate love inside of them to be drawn towards God and drawn towards Christ, and they love Him from the heart. But we can never be following Christ of our own understanding. As we seek to love Him more, we must know what we're loving Him for. And so, as he says, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free. 
what are we free from? What kind of liberty do we have? Well, first, there is liberty away from the bondage of the Mosaic Law and the bondage of those carnal ordinances. Remember last week when I mentioned that if there was ever a dirtiest job, as it were, it was going to be (laughs) the priest of the Old Testament sacrifices. You can imagine if they had that dirtiest job on today's TV, there would be none that surpassed it. To think of all the sacrifices that they had and all the different ordinances and all the washings and everything they had to do in the Old Testament. And it's a blessing to know the simplicity simply in the service that we have in Christ. The simplicity we have moving past the Old Testament law and the freedom we have to worship God in spirit and in truth. The ability to come together collectively this morning to sing praises to His name, to study His Word, and to pray to God through through Jesus Christ is freedom, is it not? We have a freedom this morning to which they did not have in the Old Testament. Freedom that is given to us through the regulation of the Word of God, the freedom that, you know, it's amazing to think the freedom we have to be able to do this anywhere. Now, I praise God that we have air conditioning and a building this morning. Amen. The first actual official church house, as it were, recorded in history was around the year 232 um, in Iraq. And so the churches haven't necessarily had church houses. They used to meet in personal houses, and they would just move from home to home, and then the first church house was somewhere around in the third century. Well, I'm thankful that today we have an actual church house, as it were, with AC. But you know, if this church house fail, which I hope it doesn't, and if the air conditioning was destroyed, and I pray to God that it doesn't in a southern summer heat, if all of that was gone, the simplicity of the New Testament church and the freedom we have in it could be done under a shade tree, right? By a creek. It can be done in somebody's house. It doesn't need electronics. It doesn't need a pomp and show. The truth of Jesus Christ and the freedom that we have in the New Testament can be done anywhere. And comparing the Old Testament sacrifice and the ordinances given and all of the strict dietary laws, civil government, and how they had to go to one specific place, as it were, one place to worship in Jerusalem, Yet now we as believers in Jesus Christ can worship in America anywhere together collectively simply by coming together, studying God's Word, and singing praises to His name. Isn't that such a blessing, the freedom that we have in Christ, just in an experiential sense, to think that God is present not only with us, but the congregations down the street, around the country, that we don't have to meet together in some pilgrimage across the world, but that God meets with us here through Jesus Christ. But I would say even past that, even past that, looking at the vital and legal nature of what God has done for us and the freedom we have, we have freedom in Christ more than just in a worship sense of moving from the Old Testament covenant, the Old Testament to the New Testament, the New Covenant in Christ, in a worship sense. Imagine the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ from fear, from anxiety, from discouragement. Every single year bringing together these sacrifices, wondering if God's going to accept it. If what I'm doing, you know, you go out into a field and you look for the best lamb to to take for the sacrificial lamb. Maybe you're impoverished, so you take some doves and you're trying to find the best and you're wondering, is God really going to accept this sacrifice? Is, Is he going to accept what I am presenting to him? 
and having the privilege of knowing through the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, for Christ dying on a cross for you, for Jesus Christ bearing the burdens of your sins upon that cross, knowing that once and for all that sacrifice is done, and that when we approach Him, He does not see us through our sins of the past week or our doubts or our fears or our frailties or our age or whatever may hinder us in a normal secular sense, but God sees us through the blood of the Lamb, there's freedom in that. There's freedom to know that God sees us through the blood of Jesus Christ. There is freedom in Jesus. So he looks and says, stand fast in the liberty, in the freedom. We're individuals that understand something about liberty and freedom this morning. Is uh, living in one of the freest countries that has ever existed on the face of the planet. Uh, as we say, the United States, the land of the free, right? Home of the brave. We understand something about liberty. Liberty and freedom. So this makes sense to us. These are words that we would understand. There are some words in our uh, there are some words in our society that we have, they're almost like mantras. And when we read them in the Bible, we may attach it to it. And typically, in what we think of freedom, that means I get to do what I want. I get to do whatever I want. I'm free, right? I, I'm told constantly, almost every single day. Um, now, now, Daddy, when, when I get older, I'm going to do whatever I want. I, I'm thinking, well, he, he, you might. But unfortunately to you, if you're hungry, you're going to do what other people want too, right? <laughs> You'll have freedom to go get a job. You'll have freedom to pay your own bills. You know, freedom doesn't necessarily mean free without any consequences, right? There are still some present, kind of in a sense, some, some boundaries to that. So when he says free, he's not saying free to sin in Christ, free to do whatever we want in Christ, but this idea of freedom is freedom to approach God in Christ. I think we've lost that sense of reverence when we understand that the only way to approach God is through a mediator. We think, because we don't have royal families and we don't have uh, these type of kind of icons, that everybody's just on the same level in some sense. You know, we're, we're just all the same level. You know, you're, you're the same level as me, and because we don't have royal families, we, we miss this point that we can't walk into the royal court of God on our own merit. We can't. And it takes a mediator. It takes an intercessor for us to be able to approach God. It takes somebody standing between us and God, covering our sins for us to go to God. So this liberty that it speaks of is not the liberty to do what we want, but the liberty we are given in Christ is to now worship God in its fullness. It's now to follow God in its fullness. When we say that we are free in Christ, we're not saying we're free to do what we want. We're saying that we're now free to be able to serve God. And then he says, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. He says, if you're free, don't go back. Do not go back to where you've been. This would be equivalent in a sense of somebody living in a free nation. Somebody living in a constitutional republic, somebody living in an area where you have an abundance of freedom. You have the freedom of speech, you have the freedom of religion, you have the right to bear arms, you have the freedom of a due process and a trial, all of those wonderful 
all of those wonderful rights given to us in the Bill of Rights, and then acting in their daily life as if they were still living under some type of dictatorship or authoritarian rule. Now imagine this, if in 1776, if we all of a sudden declare independence and we win independence and yet everybody still acts as though they are living under the crown, what sense would that have made for citizens of the United States of America? Or maybe somebody is able to flee a country. Somebody flees a country, they're persecuted, they're a refugee, and they come into the country of which they live now, the freedom of the United States, and now they are protected under law. Let's say they have, they have gotten emancipation, they come in, they're free, and then all of a sudden they still live in that type of fear. They're programmed to think that way. They're programmed to continue to think that they're still in bondage. You see, he's giving this view of not being entangled or not being intertwined, not being wrapped up in that slavish bondage that came with the Old Testament, that came with that Mosaic Covenant as it, as it was perverted by the Judaizers. It was meant to point to Christ. It was meant to point to the freedom they would one day enjoy, but they had so perverted it in this, this way to where now that it was twisted to where they thought they had to keep it. And it worked, in a sense, as bondage and a chains for their life. And yet, although they had been set free by Christ, they are wanting to now live in bondage. That's the kind of picture we're given here. This idea of having complete freedom, having complete riches, having complete everything that we need in Christ, yet living as though you have nothing. I tell my children sometime when they're like, are you really, are, you know, are, are, are you going to do, you know, help us? Are you going to feed us? I'm like, son, when have you ever missed a meal? <laughs> I mean, I promise. I'm like clockwork, right? You know, there we wake up and God, God bless my boys at first day of summer. Wake up at 5.30. <laughs> oh, goodness. And I told him, if you wake up at 5.30 tomorrow, you go downstairs and play with Legos till Daddy gets up. I'm not getting up at 5.30 to feed you. And the reason is because then they'll be hungry at like 7. But, you know, when have you ever missed a meal? When, why would you act as though that you are a child of somebody that doesn't take care of you? Why would you act in that mental bondage? Why would you be entangled with that type of thinking? You see, this goes back to just a fearish slavery of damnation under the law, but this equally goes to a mentality of who is your father? Who are we in? Who are we free in? You know, if we're free in Christ, there are certain blessings that come with that that extinguishes fear in life. If we understand that Jesus Christ is our Savior and God and our Lord, the ruler of all, in Him all things move and have their being, and there is nothing that exists that He does not sovereignly allow to exist, when we understand that we are free in Him, what does that do to anxiety? This is why we say, not my will, but thine be done. We sing that song, Prince of Peace, control my will. Let this beating heart be still. We sing that song so often, but we forget the real beauty of those words to understand that if you are in Christ, the freedom of knowing that you are God's transcends the problems in this world. It transcends the trials. It transcends the sickness, the disease, the cancer. It transcends 
the frustration, the economic collapse. It transcends the problematic issues in the political world sphere. It transcends it because you, whatever bondage you experience in this life, you have freedom in Christ. And that freedom is eternal regardless of how bad bondage you experience now. You see, it moves past just the Mosaic Law. This mentality moves past just going from the Judaizers. It moves past just going from one worship to another and moves directly into the very fact that this changes everything. It goes back to the very first point that Paul makes in this epistle when he says, who gave himself for us in verse 4 of chapter 1 of Galatians, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father. It transcends the problems of this world. Why? Because he delivers us both in body and soul and in mind. He has come to give us life, but not just any life, but an abundant life. And then Paul kind of gives two negative, um, negatives for them of what it means if you're going back to the law. As he says, behold, that means to mark, take notice. Pay attention to this, as it were, Paul says. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you. Now, he's going to tell them in verse 2 and verse 3, I, Paul, and then in verse 3, for I testify. And he's going to look at them specifically, speaking to them, you. It's not until verse 5 where he transitions to a collective we. But from verses 2 through 4, he's going to address those that have fallen. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if ye be circumcised, uh, I'm sorry, if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. Now, this does not say that circumcision, just because it is a circumcision, is bad. But what he's saying here is that circumcision or any action through which that we think we can please God and justify ourselves before God, that will mean that Christ profits us nothing. It's not that an action in and of itself is bad. It's not that he's saying if you do this or do any of the old mosaic, there are some things in the law that made sense, right? You know, some things that were kind of different for their time period that they didn't really know about. The whole washing your body after you touch something that's dead. Well, that's just good hygiene, right? <laughs> that, you know, you shouldn't think, well, I shouldn't do this because it's in the Mosaic Law. No, that was just good sense. You know, as much as I love the freedom we have to eat pork in the New Testament, I'm not going to eat too much of it because it made sense not to eat that much, right? There are some things in the Mosaic Law that weren't bad. So he's not saying just the action itself, but the action as they believe indebted God to save them is bad. And we can move past this point from verse 2 of thinking, if ye be circumcised, we can move past just the initial context of saying whatever it is that somebody thinks indebts God to save them, whatever it is, Bible reading, church attendance, and both of those things are good singing prayers, praying to God, confessing the sinner's prayer, whatever you think that it is that indebts God to justify you and justifies you before God, if you think your action is what changes your position before Christ, Christ profits you nothing. It's either solely of God or it's solely of man. 
And if it's solely of man, we're lost. And we will be forever lost. And we will be eternally lost. And this is why he says, if you... Ye that be circumcised, behold, I, Paul, and you know, he resonates with this. He doesn't pull his office here. He doesn't say, Paul the Apostle. He says, behold, I, Paul, meaning me as the Jew, not now as the Apostle speaking to you, but me as the Jew who now rests solely in Christ as my salvation. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you, that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. He says, if you believe it's of works, then Christ is no gain to you. He then says in verse 3, backing up this statement as he says, For I testify again to every man that is circumcised. He says, I testify again, whether he's referring to the preceding verse or his past sermons in Galatia. He says, as I testify again. And I will use this, I will use this verse as a proof text. When I make a good point in a sermon, don't think me wrong for using that point again in the next sermon. <laughs> it's okay to testify again. A good point's a good point regardless of when you use it. And he says, I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Christ is become of no effect unto you, whosoever of you are justified by the law. You are fallen from grace. Three points that he makes. Christ is no gain to you first. Secondly, if you believe it is by the law through which you are justified, then you must keep the entirety of the law. And then three, Christ is of no effect of you if you think it is by the law, turning back to his original point. Now, it's interesting the way that he argues here and the argument that he makes. Because he says first, if you think you must keep, just be circumcised. Christ is of no gain to you. However, if you think you must be circumcised, you have to keep everything that God has laid before you and all the statutes and all the ordinances. And if you are a breaker in a single one, then you broke all of them. Therefore, you are in that bondage, that servitude, that slavish nature of the law that if you think you have to keep one, you must keep them all. So first, Christ is of no gain to you who think that you have to just be circumcised. Christ is of no gain, but moving past that, if you think that you have to be circumcised, you've got to do it all. <laughs> it's not just a little bit. Again, we've lost the principle that we can't approach God on our own, and it must be through the prophet of Christ, because if it is by our behavior, our discipleship, if it's by what we do, we must keep it all, and we cannot. That's why he says Christ has become of no effect to you. I want to look to one place to kind of emphasize this point and the exclusivity that we find in Christ. John chapter 14. This is a very recognizable passage, one that I'm sure that all of you know. At the very beginning, his upper room discourse as he's about to go to the cross. The very beginning of this passage we recognize it's mentioned at funerals, it's mentioned in pulpits. It is one of the verses that gives us hope as believers in Jesus Christ that we will one day be with Him in glory. And the very beginning of this sermon that He gives to His disciples says, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in Me. And He tells them there that in His Father's house there are many mansions. He's going to prepare for them a place. He prepares for them this place through His sacrifice on the cross, and he says, whether I go, ye know, and the way, ye know. And they're confused. 
Where are you going? How do you go there? Thomas, in verse 5, speaks up. Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? I really love the honesty of the disciples in the Gospels. It's very open, kind of bare in front of us. It's one way that I know that the Word of God really is divinely inspired. Because honestly, if I was writing a book with my name in it, you wouldn't see some of the (laughs) ignorant things that Josh Winslet says, right? (laughs) If I was writing an autobiography, I'd look spotless, undefiled, and clean. Y'all think, man, that guy was a saint. Yet in the Word of God, we see men like David and Abraham, not only their highs but their lows. We see men like Peter and here Thomas. Thomas didn't say, okay, I get it, Jesus. Sometimes I'm listening to super intellectual statements that people are making, and I'm just going, oh, yes, you know, (laughs) I get that, yes, I get it. Mm -hmm." I would have probably been standing there in front of uh, Jesus and going, oh, yes, that makes sense, Lord. You know, and then I would have backed up and thought, what did he just say? But Thomas immediately opens up in front of him. I love the Word of God and its honesty, its transparent nature. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest. Where are you going, Lord? And how can we know the way? How do we get there? Jesus looks in verse 6 and tells him, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Notice he does not say, I am a way, I am a truth, and I am a life. That would mean that there would be other ways, that there would be other truths, and there would be other lives. That's not what he says here, is it? Jesus Christ holds complete exclusivity to being the only way to God's eternal glory, being the only truth, and being the only life for His children. He holds complete exclusivity. In our ecumenical age where everybody's religion is everybody's religion. And, you know, I do believe that God has a people in every kindred, nation, and tongue under the sun. And praise be unto God, not because of what they believe, but in spite of what they believe. God has a people throughout all the world, divinely, sovereignly chosen by Him before the foundation of the world, bought by Him on the cross, and quickened by divine grace. In spite of what they believe, they are saved by grace. Amen? Yet still... The exclusive nature of Jesus Christ. I am the way. Not a way. The only way. He is the truth. Not your truth. Not my truth. The truth. Why does truth matter? Because Jesus is the truth. I am the life. The exclusive nature of Jesus Christ, this is why he says that both twice, as he repeats it, one in verse 2, Christ shall profit you nothing. In other words, he's gained nothing to you, and Christ has become of no effect unto you. He is ineffectual, basically. He is ineffectual. He means nothing to you. Those who are justified by the law. And then he uses that expression, ye are fallen from grace. What does that expression, fallen from grace, mean? Does this mean that a person born again can fall out of their standing with God? Does it mean that those who have once been saved can fall to a place 
where they are no longer in God's grace. If that were the case, then we would all fall. When it says that they are fallen from grace, what he's saying is that you have fallen from the truth of grace. You have moved away from the light. You've moved away from the truth to what is not grace. Now, it is true that there are some that may stand up and proclaim their own self-righteousness like the unrighteous Pharisees that would often stand up even in Luke chapter 18. We see that one Pharisee that stands up and says, Lord, look at everything that I've done. Look, look, look at who I am and how I am. And man, don't I just look good, you know? And he just stands there and, and, and admires himself in a way, right? He, he's got a big mirror that has a, one of those filters from our phones on it that takes out all the blemishes. And he's just admiring himself before God. Now, it is true that some wicked, unregenerate people stand up and Christ is no gain to them and of no effect to them. People that are in their sins, as it were, all people are born Arminians. <laughs> We're all born thinking we can do it. But I don't think that's who this is talking about either. I think this is talking about one of God's children, one who has been pricked by the beauty of Jesus Christ, yet has been pulled back into a system of false belief to where they think, well, I know Jesus Christ has done it. I know it's by grace, but I just think that I've got to do something else, right? That's the image we're getting here, an image of a child of God who's been born again by divine grace, who's been quickened by the sovereign love of Jesus Christ, yet is now looking inwardly instead of externally to find peace before God. You see, the very moment we take our eyes off of Christ and begin to look at ourselves, we're falling from grace. And there are a spectrum of this. Sometimes uh, days I'm pretty good, you know. We sing that we sing multiple songs that uh, I believe it is in our hymnal where it says, I wonder if I am born again. Is there anyone like me? We've all experienced that feeling where we begin to question ourselves. We don't question God. We understand Christ is sovereign, but we turn inwardly. And we begin on that spectrum of falling, moving away from the principles and doctrines of Christ. You see, this is not written to the unbeliever. This is not written to send fear that you can one day lose what God has done in you. This is sent to the struggling believer in Jesus Christ to say, turn your eyes back away from what you do and turn them to Christ. This is why he says in verse 5, he turns it back from them by saying, you, you. And then in verse 5, he says, for we. Notice he uses a collective term here. Not just you, but we all, all believers. He includes those to whom he had just spoken with. He says, for we, through the Spirit, wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. He says, instead of looking internally at ourselves in our own problems and our own works and our own doubts and our own fears and what we can do, we, believers in Jesus Christ, through the Spirit of God. For we, through the Spirit. It is not through our own actions. It's not through our own ability. It's not through what we do, but it is through the sovereign Spirit of God Almighty through the Spirit of God, we wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. Instead of looking at 
let me put it this way. Instead of focusing so much on our external evidence, you know, the Bible is full of assurances for God's people, right? Um, 1 John, 1 John um, chapter 4 deals exclusively with love. One of the love chapters. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 1 talks about if we believe that if we believe that Jesus is the Christ, we are born of God. In other words, if you believe in Jesus, you are quickened by the Spirit of God. It gives us assurances. But the problem is. As much as I love my brethren, sometimes y'all aren't that lovable. <laughs> as I've said before, sometimes sheep bite. And sometimes I may not love like I should. And then what happens? If I'm focusing on the amount of love that I'm showing to brothers and sisters in Christ, my assurance wavers. If I'm focusing on the fervency of my faith today, though faith in its actual quality never changes, because you're given faith at the new birth, the quantity or expression of that faith in its fullness can vary from day to day. Your faith, by the grace of God, what God has done in you will never leave. But how you use it often does, right? It can be like a candle that burns bright one day that's just at a flicker the next. Praise God, it never burns out. But sometimes it's bright and sometimes it's low. And if I'm focusing on those externals, some days I'm going to doubt. But Paul looks and says, For we, through the Spirit, wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. What he says, I'm not looking at the externals. I'm not focusing on self. I'm not focusing on any type of self-actualization. I'm not trying to see myself and what I can do. I'm not trying to reach the pyramid of my own life. But what I'm doing is focusing my attention to the Spirit of God to that day in which I will be bathed in the righteousness of Christ. My hope, and this word hope does not mean a fickle wish or just a desire, but what it means is something you know will happen. The anchor of the soul, your hope that is not yet fully realized that you're looking for, you're looking towards that. You see, that is the liberty in which the believer walks. The believer has the hope not in this life, in its fullest, but in the next. In other words, you're not going to have your best life now, as the popular mantra is. Your best life is the eternal life. Praise God, we have an abundant life through Jesus Christ and the freedom we have in Him. But the reason we have this freedom in Christ is because through the Spirit we wait. You see, the liberty that we have is in not looking down, but looking up. And then he looks finally in verse 6. As he closes here with this train of thought of standing in liberty, for in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision. He says, whichever. You know, same thing can go for New Testament obligations. Now, I will say in a sense, it does avail. It is good for us, our duty as a Christian, our discipleship. But as it pertains to standing before God, it does not avail anything. But he says, what does avail? What is pleasing to God? What it avails in our hearts and minds? But faith which worketh by love. 
what we see compared here, one principle that works by fear, and one principle that works by love. The Old Testament law, in closing, works by soliciting anxiety and fear to continue to do the same thing, hoping you'll get a different outcome. You know, sometimes even as parents, I hope my children serve me because I'm just their dad and I'm lovable, you know, I'm handsome, I'm smart, we take care of them. I hope they serve me because of that. But sometimes, even as a dad, I have to say, no, sometimes you're going to serve me because you fear me, right? <laughs> so I, I get this principle. You know, there's different reasons we fear. But, you know, and likewise with my wife, you know, she, there are so many reasons to, to, to serve her with my fervency. She's beautiful, she's smart. You know, they say the better half. I'm like, everything about her is better. I married up in every category. She's pretty, she's smart, she's nice, she's, she, she's better than me, she makes more money than me. I mean, she, she's just wonderful, right? Amen, somebody amen, she's wonderful. She's great. And how I duped her, I have no idea. Bad eyesight, I guess, <laughs> you know? I don't know how it worked. And, you know, I, I don't serve her because of fear, even though she's frightening. <laughs> And sometimes, sometimes, you know, I, I, there may be times that fear is invo involved. But why do I serve her? I serve her because I love her. I serve her because she is my bride. You see, faith does not work with fear. Faith worketh by love. The old mantra, if I believed like you believe, why would I do anything? Because faith doesn't work by fear. It doesn't work by greed. And if you approach God because you think you're getting something, then you're not approaching God because He's Jesus Christ. You're approaching Him because of your own greedy lust. But faith works by love. If you love Jesus Christ... You serve Him. Not because of fear. Not because you want something. As the law would give us. But you're serving God, seeing what He has done for you. An undeserving sinner, yet redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Faith works by love and liberty we have in Christ Jesus. Please bow with me. Gracious Lord, thank you for your love and your graciousness. Lord, thank you for your sovereignty that we have in your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that we walk in this liberty that you have given us through your Son. I pray, gracious God, that we would not be entangled with this yoke of bondage that the law gives us, that we would not be entangled with fears and anxieties. But Lord, we would walk in the freedom serving you in peace and in love. And Lord, that we would be established in that wonderful grace that you have bestowed upon us richly and bathed us in through Jesus Christ. Gracious Lord, we are so undeserving of your love. We are so undeserving of having your Son, God incarnate, die for us. 
having been ridiculed by man, and Lord, having our sin laid on His account and having Your wrath poured out, we are undeserving. But gracious God, we thank You so much for the liberty that You've given us in Your Son. I pray, Lord, that our faith would be cultivated and worked by the love we have as we view the cross on which Your Son died. Let us find liberty in His resurrection, in the Son of God who ever lives to make intercession for us. And let us use this liberty to sing praises to Your name. Lord, thank You for being a Father who does away with all fear. In Your name we pray, and Amen.